This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Federal workers, researchers, and private citizens have until January 31 to submit feedback about the president's management agenda. The Office of Management and Budget, OMB, has released a draft learning agenda to identify ways to coordinate implementation of President Biden's management goals. Individual agencies will also be releasing their own learning agendas this coming spring. A new online portal could provide better access to federal resources that will inform work related to AI. The National Artificial Intelligence Initiative Office has created the AI Researchers Portal with the goal of making useful AI tools more widely available. Some of the resources in the portal include computing resources, data sets, and a research and development testbed inventory. The Defense Department has a new permanent chief information officer. The Senate confirmed John Sherman to the position. He has served as acting CIO since January 2021. One of Sherman's priorities is to create a new strategy to recruit cyber talent to the DOD. He says he will use a, quote, whole-of-nation effort to implement that digital recruitment strategy. The House of Representatives Subcommittee on Government Operations wants to improve recruitment and retention of younger federal workers. A new bill would establish a comprehensive internship and fellowship program at OPM. Congressman Jerry Connolly is a senior member of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. He's the chairman of the Subcommittee on Government Operations. Congressman, welcome to the program. Great to be with you, Mimi. All right, so give us an overview of your your new bill. It's called Building the Next Generation of Federal Employees Act, or Next Gen Feds. What's the bill supposed to accomplish? So let's put it in context just a little bit, Mimi. In the private sector, um, internships are used for recruitment. So there are companies that if you go through a competitive process and are chosen to be an intern with that company, you get trained, you get orientation, you have a mentor assigned to you, uh, you're moved around the company so you can decide which part of the company maybe would be good fit for you. And the odds are in the 70, 80 percentile that you're going to be offered a job and you'll take it. That's, that's an extremely successful kind of uh, enterprise. In the federal government, unfortunately, we're looking at single digits of people who are offered a job and accepted. So the internship program has no rhyme or reason. There's no consistency whatsoever. Uh, Every agency, every department in every agency can handle it sort of the way they want. When, if they do at all, exit interviews, many of them are very negative. Uh, People saying, I don't want to ever work for the federal government again. The experience was that bad. That is horrible. I mean, that's just not acceptable. So my bill is designed to try to systematize the internship program um, give it, you know, give it a home within the Office of Personnel Management, appoint an executive director who's in charge, set some standards that have to be met, some evaluation criteria that will be applied uh, during and after the internship experience, uh, and try to pump it up so that we make it a positive experience and we use it for recruitment. We've got to remember, you know, 40% of the current federal workforce is eligible for retirement. Uh, sometime between now and the end of the decade. 
Uh, that's 800,000 people we've got to replace. Uh, and we're certainly not going to do it with an internship program with single digit uh, positive results. And so do you envision this center managing all the federal internships and fellowships across the government? Well, I, th I think the better word is coordination uh, because we don't want to take away the autonomy of agencies. You know, an, an internship experience at EPA is going to be radically different than an internship at, you know, the Center for Disease Control or NASA or USDA. Uh, so we, we recognize, obviously, we have to respect the diversity of the huge enterprise that is the federal government. But there ought to be some common elements in terms of mentorship, uh, moving people around, making sure that experience is positive, uh, exposing them to the various elements of a particular agency or department, uh, and actively and aggressively trying to recruit those individuals for longer-term federal employment. Now, the bill also would give certain credits to somebody who successfully completed an internship program, so they have a little bit of a leg up competitively to be able to apply and successfully get a federal job. Uh, we think that makes sense. We do it for veterans. Uh, and if we're going to make the uh, internship program meaningful at all, other than some appendage that has no, uh, no impact, uh, we've got to do this. Um, and I, th I think it's, it's a small dent, but it could help professionalize the experience and give us at least one conduit uh, in recruitment and I, uh, hopefully long-term retention. And as you know, Congress holds the purse strings. So how will this center be funded? How are you funding the initiative? Well, uh, again, we have, you know, OPM has its own budget uh, and we could plus up the budget as necessary. I don't see this as a particularly expensive kind of proposition because I think it's mostly trying to bring together disparate pieces that already exist and, and having a coordination office within OPM. So I don't think that's going to be some big expense for the federal government, but I do believe uh, that it will professionalize and upgrade the management of what is now an inchoate, uh, disparate experience in the federal government. And will this center be also looking to advance the administration's priority to promote diversity, equity, inclusion, yes. accessibility? Yes, absolutely. All those criteria would certainly be applicable to those who apply for internships, and these would be paid internships, uh, which I think also helps. Um, I, I know on Capitol Hill, for example, when we started to provide stipends just a couple of years ago for internships, all of a sudden, diversity skyrocketed. Uh, because prior to that time, um, you know, it was families that could afford to have a son or daughter intern with a Capitol Hill office, and that, you know, just de facto was discriminatory in its face in terms of income disparity uh, and inequality. So uh, equalizing the opportunity to work for the federal government through uh, a paid internship, I think, is uh, absolutely critical moving forward. But all of those diversity criteria would absolutely apply to this program. And finally, program. finally, Congressman, how would you measure the success of this program? Would it be in the transition of how many interns uh, would transition into the federal government? Yeah, I think there are several metrics, but that's one, Mimi, absolutely. The bottom line is, and how do we move from single-digit 
uh, you know, incorporation into the federal employment and something I hope in the double digits and ultimately high double digits. So uh, setting, you know, measuring success that way is absolutely a bottom line uh, imperative. But I think there are other metrics as well in terms of can we also make sure that more and more people who go through the program uh, when they do an exit interview have a positive experience instead of a negative experience. Uh, because that tells us the mentorship is working, the rotation within the agency is working, the experience was generally positive. Yeah. Um, and so uh, th those are some other metrics as well. And again, you can get at that by doing systematically exit interviews of people who in fact went through the internship program. All right, well, Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. We'll check in on your bill as it moves through the process. Anytime, Mimi. Thank you and happy holidays. You too. Coming next, the U.S. is facing two key great power rivalries. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the U.S. government can stabilize its relationships with Russia and China. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. As great power competitions intensify with China and Russia, the Defense Department looks to add military capabilities. But rivalries remain stable and avoid war for a variety of reasons. Michael Mazar is a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation. His new co-authored report is called Stabilizing Great Power Rivalries. Mike, welcome to the program. Thanks very much. Great to be here. So can you start by defining for us what you mean by stability? Is it, is it simply the absence of war? That is a great question, and that's uh, the, the question we really started with in this study. And um, ultimately, what we came to conclude was, if you're talking about a situation like U.S.-China, U.S.-Russia today, uh, there are two big factors that help you define something that can remain stable and not go into constant crises, not go into war. Um, and one of those is that <clears throat> you have a situation where both sides can live with a, a shared world that they both feel like meets their basic interests. We call it a shared status quo. Uh, and the other factor is that this relationship has enough inherent kind of equilibrium to recover from crises so that as in the Cold War, you can go into a crisis, but there's enough personal relationships, there's enough acceptance that going to war would be too dangerous, that they tend to come back to uh, sort of a more stable equilibrium after that. So those are the two big factors that we think characterize a relationship that can be, you know, what we call stable in the long term. And you talk about strategic rivalry. How do you define that? Yeah, so another great question. Um, there's a lot of discussion these days about competition, right? We're in a strategic competition with China and Russia. The the the, the government and its its different strategy documents have, has called it that. Um, that's true. We are competing, uh, but believe it or not, the term competition is not really very well defined. If you look at international relations theory and history and other kind of sources of thinking about it, uh, the term rivalry is a much more classic way of describing when two big powers 
members have a long-term kind of clash of interests. And there's a lot of defining characteristics of that, but primarily it's uh, two big powers who have a history of contestation of some kind, whether they've been at war or just in general in competition, uh, that very much see themselves uh, as, uh, if not enemies, then strong competitors, um, and that uh, engage in a, kind of a series of actions that are designed to gain a competitive advantage over the other one. And there's other factors, but just the idea that that notion of rivalry is a little richer uh, when we think about it from the standpoint of, of understanding what these things are all about. So, Mike, really, the United States only has a strategic rivalry with China and Russia, not, say, North Korea, just because right, they're, exactly. they're just not competitive enough. Right. And so one of the, you know, what you're getting at is one of the defining, another defining aspect of rivalry is that they have to be sort of peers. They have to be more or less equal. And in fact, um, a lot of folks will say that we only really have one real rivalry, and that is with China, because as troublesome as Russia is, as we are seeing now, um, and as much as it believes itself to be a great power, and by some definitions it is, um, it's not really a rivalry because Russia's power is nowhere equal to the United States. So one way to look at it is that we've, we really are in a rivalry with China and then other countries with Russia being a, a big one, but North Korea, Iran um, are uh, sort of other strategic challenges for the United States, but not, not a pure rival. So let's talk about China. Are we trending toward more instability, do you think? Uh, definitely, that was our finding. Um, now we, you know, the, <clears throat> when we work on reports uh, for the government, they take a while to clear. So the research on this finished up a bit more than a year ago. Um, but our lead China scholar, uh, Timothy Heath, um, one of our lead RAN China experts who did that part of the report, um, believes that very much uh, we remain on the trajectory that we saw at that time. And that is, we laid out um, you know, a dozen or so variables for judging whether a rivalry is stable or not. And the vast majority of those with China were headed in the wrong direction. And of course, we've seen all the hallmarks of that since that time in terms of trade disputes, in terms of um, uh, U.S. confrontation of China over its ambitions in over Taiwan and in the South China Sea. So yeah, we're, we've definitely headed in a bad direction. And the thing that worries us is, <clears throat> The lesson from the Cold War is you can build some stability, as we talked about. You can mitigate those risks with a number of uh, sort of characteristics of a relationship. If you have senior uh, leaders that have strong personal ties, if you have very good communication uh, systems, if you have very good rules of the road so and, that everybody and Mike, knows. I, sorry to cut you off, but I wanted to ask you about that specifically because President Biden met with Chinese leader Xi in November virtually. Did that help? Did that result in lessening the antagonism uh, between the two countries? So it did in the sense that it, you know, contributed to, to a, con a continuing process of senior leader discussions that can help to dampen uh, the, the severity of the competition. In and of itself, though, you know, talking doesn't solve the, the clashes of interest. But when both sides, as they did, indicated at least a desire to try to keep the, the relationship stable, that establishes a baseline you can work from. So those kind of discussions are definitely helpful. Coming next, we'll continue our discussion about stabilizing strategic rivalries. Stay with us.
Welcome back. We're here with Michael Mazar, a senior political scientist at the Rand Corporation. His new co-authored report is called Stabilizing Great Power Rivalries. So, Mike, you know, your, your report talks about the costs of aggression, right? Because, um, because of the economic interdependence of the two countries, we're talking about the U.S. and China, the cost of war is just too high for both sides. How likely is, uh, a, you know, war or a misunderstanding, a miscalculation? So it's it's hard to say. The cost of of the conflict is a is a big factor, but unfortunately, there's a lot of historical cases that show that countries can kind of get themselves in a mindset that they can avoid those costs. I mean, Japan in 1941 knew they'd suffer immense destruction if the United States really went to war in response to Pearl Harbor, but they convinced themselves it wouldn't. So there's a lot of sort of inadvertent, accidental, uh, misperception-oriented ways you can get to war, even despite the cost. Having said that, the combination of nuclear weapons, economic interdependence, it all creates a situation where, as far as we know, uh, China is very interested in getting its objectives without going to war. So there's a baseline assumption that we should avoid it if we could, which offers some stabilizing ballast to this relationship. Well, you know, and speaking about Russia, though, there really isn't that strong economic tie that the U.S. has with Russia, where yeah. our economies are really not that interdependent. No, exactly. And, and um, you know, Russia is a little more so with Europe, um, as Europe has been in the last couple of months, a little more willing to talk about economic costs for a renewed intervention in Ukraine that can help deter conflict. Um, but yeah, Russia is, is sort of outside of much of the world um, economy, uh, networks of technology exchange and all that. So they have a little less um, to lose. On the other hand, an attack on an actual NATO ally, like in the Baltic states, would prompt a war with NATO. And of course, that has incalculable risk. So my view is that Russia will still want to, because of the cost of war, want to avoid steps like that. Um, what they're threatening to do in Ukraine, you know, they may feel like they can get away with it without those kinds of costs. You know, climate experts, uh, Mike, are always saying that the U.S. and China really have to cooperate on climate change. Uh, what do you think are the chances? Uh, I don't know. I mean, obviously, uh, the United States, uh, this administration has been trying very hard uh, to engage them. Um, and, you know, both countries on their own are making independent decisions that are that don't uh, involve sufficient action on climate. And then really, you know, I think that the, the basic pattern we've seen over the last couple of years is that the United States has been approaching China on a range of areas to cooperate, not just climate, but North Korea and a variety of other things. And um, the, the, it has not been able to build all that much ongoing uh, cooperation on these issues. Uh, the exact reasons for that, we're not really sure, but it's it's been very difficult so far. So in going back to the U.S.-Russia uh, relationship, um, you know, the, the Russians are always saying that they're looking for respect. And, and you mentioned that in your, in your report, that it's really they're seeking respect from especially the United States. Yeah. Yeah, and, and China is as well, quite frankly. And this is one of the trickiest things about, you know, sort of the implications of our report and, and I think more, more generally for U.S. policy. On the one hand, we have to, to, to show strength, show credibility, indicate that certain actions won't be tolerated. On the other hand, our research, to me, shows pretty clearly that keeping a rivalry like this stable demands 
that we recognize some of the essential interests of the other side. We have to have a balance between sort of threats, uh, you know, sticks and carrots, so to speak. Uh, and that was true in the Cold War. It's been true in every rivalry that has, has not gone to war and has remained at least somewhat stable. So the challenge then becomes, how can you grant them some of the prestige and status that they're looking for in various ways uh, without creating a sense that uh, of weakness and that they can pretty much do whatever they want because you're uh, you know, in the mood of so-called appeasement? And that is the most essential balance that we've got to strike in, in policy toward both Russia and China. Do you predict that the U.S.-Russia relationship will continue to get worse? So I don't know. You know, what's interesting right now is based on the latest demands that Russia and, and Putin have given, uh, it's a long list, um, you know, in the context of this crisis over Ukraine. And clearly the United States and the West are not going to meet them all. But just recently, in the last couple of days, NATO has indicated that it's open to discussions. So if this process creates a, a new large scale set of dialogues on kind of a transatlantic order, where, as I was just saying, we can offer Russia some assurances um, about, you know, U.S. military deployments, about the extension of NATO, whatever, things that will address their interests. But they can also uh, offer concessions and assurances that could bring the relationship to a much better place than it has been. Um, I wouldn't put my money on it because uh, Putin has an interest in uh, a hostile relationship with the West, but it is a glimmer of hope that those kind of talks can lead in a direction that becomes uh, less crisis prone, more stable, um, and around the edges, a little more cooperative. All right, well, Mike, I appreciate you joining us. Thanks very much. You can find a link to Mike's report online at govmatters.tv resources. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. You can get a preview and a recap of each show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You can sign up for the email list on the Government Matters homepage. We're back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers 
through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.